0: Welcome to Fresh Cut Grass. Light conversation with turf grass professionals from across the turf industry with your hosts, Jeff Fowler and Tanner Delval. Hello and welcome to this episode of Fresh Cut Grass. My name is Jeff Fowler, one of your co-hosts with me this week. Tanner DelVal, my co-host. Tanner, good to have you back this week and every week. Yeah, absolutely. What's new? Oh, getting ready for winter meeting season. Is, you know, yours and my favorite time of the year when we get to go out and um, visit with masses of people um, and and stand in front of them and talk about what we learned over the summer and uh, maybe what we saw, or how to control those diseases, or insects, or whatever the ins- whatever the case is, um, but it's um, what we what what at least what makes me go to work every day, right? Is 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 being able to stand up and talk and teach in front of people. Yeah, absolutely. Got a full uh, a full docket
1: this year. Lots of yeah, different so, meetings.
0: Yeah. So that'll be that's that's kind of our shameless plug. Um, no matter where you're listening to us, um, check out your your local land grant university or your local educators, um, and see what kind of educational opportunities um, are available in your area, um, whether it's um, turf or you know, landscape or whatever the whatever the the um, driving force behind your company or your business is, um, you know, make sure you check them out and, and, and take advantage of the opportunities because they are a plenty this time of the year when um, when most people are are just waiting for it to snow so that we can get rid of it. Um, and and today's episode, Tanner, is actually a great example of that. Um, you and I had had a conversation um, and decided that we needed to expand, spread our wings with no pun intended, and um, reach out to one of our co-workers, Brian Walsh, um, and Brian is um, what I will refer to as our spotted lanternfly expert. Um, now, Brian's shaking his head no, but he is, because you know what the definition of an expert is, Tanner. What's that? carrying a briefcase, and more than 50 miles from home. (laughs) And I know Brian's further than 50 miles from me. Uh, He'd probably be right on the cusp for you. So we're going to call him the expert. But I will say this, Brian is a wealth of information that we're going to um, have a conversation with today. Um, He's a a co-worker of ours at Penn State Extension. Um, He has an interesting background that he shared with us before the show. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, so why don't you tell our guests or our our listeners um a little bit about how you got to Penn State? I should first say our topic today is spotted lanternfly, which if you're not familiar with by the end of this show you will be um and and you'll understand why you need to be when we're all done. Um Brian Brian is um is, is heading up a lot of projects for us at Penn State. And um, we just thought he would be a, a, a great, a great interview, a great conversation to have um, for our guests. So sorry to cut you off there, Brian, but tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got to us. Sure. So uh, I come from the commercial world. I was
2: running my own landscape business, happily working away on uh, the Berks County region and spotted lanternfly was discovered in 2014, uh, just a few miles from our, uh, our shop. And I uh, started paying attention because it was a new, a new invasive and it was very close and uh, pretty early on uh, uh, within two years, it was, it had overrun our location and uh, there was a lot of things that we were noticing that we really at odds with, what some of the experts, uh, I don't know if they were carrying briefcases, Jeff, uh, okay. they were definitely more than 50 miles from home. And a lot of them were showing up for a day or two and making observations and writing papers about it when they got back to uh, their locations. And, and a lot of what they were uh, observing, I won't say it was inaccurate, but it was not the whole picture. Uh, they definitely, um, got a lot of things wrong and uh, not, not that they got them wrong in the manner of completely wrong. It's just that they saw a limited shot snapshot of what was going on and decided that was the whole picture. And, um, and it was not. And so uh, my company um, just trying to serve our customers, started working with the insect, uh, seeing what we could do, trying to make observations, trying to understand. And it's a, It's a completely new, uh, new environment for something that's never been in the Western hemisphere before. And some of the ways that it's acted here has not been what was described, uh, in its home, home environment, nor in South Korea, where it was also an invasive. So, um, with that, I started getting more involved and with my connections through Penn State extension, met some of the researchers from Penn State that were brought in, uh, and, um. from here, here I wound up somehow. It's kind of a, kind of a spiral. So um, looking back, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very strange trajectory to be working here doing this after uh, doing just my, my normal uh, landscape maintenance business. Uh,
1: Yeah. No, fantastic. Um, I guess, you know, the first thing to kind of kick this conversation off is there I don't know if I'll say still, or is there, is there the view that this could
2: be eradicated still or not? Not anybody that, okay. Anybody with any sense of, of reality knows that this thing is way beyond eradication. Um, We will never understand or fully appreciate what the efforts that have been undertaken may have done to slow its spread and that, and they may be significant. However, um, we can see clearly that it's spreading and it's spreading at, at a good clip. And, and as, it, as it encompasses more geographic area, you know, just just by the, the math, the odds are it will continue to accelerate, so. Yeah, uh, so like how many eggs does one adult lay? Uh, one egg mass is, is average about 35, uh, eggs and depending on the season and, and the health of the female, she can lay anywhere from one to three egg masses that we know of. So if each female can lay, you know, putting out 105 eggs, we we've kind of done the work out that you have to have about a 93%, uh, kill rate, death rate on, of a population just to be stable with this insect just because of the reproduction rate. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's,
0: it's not at all. So Brian, Brian, some of our, some of our listeners may not even know what spotted lanternfly is. Um, um, if they're out of our region in Pennsylvania, you know, the mid Atlantic region, you know, if they're living, listening to us from the West coast, for example, they may not even know what it is. Um, so let's, let's, um, talk about what it is how it got here um you know how it became such an invasive um so let's let's, yeah. go, let's go down that rabbit hole for a while all right so uh
2: it's uh, it's a plant hopper it's um it's a plant hopper that flies don't let the name that the the description there that way fool you it's a plant hopper it is capable of flying. Uh, There's still a lot of information out there that says they can't fly. They can fly just fine. Um, The adults are about an inch, inch and a quarter long. So fairly big. They're hermipteran. So uh, picture in terms of feeding like a giant mobile aphid. Um, But also, um, you know, it has four nymphal uh, stages that are, wingless and then it will molten to the adult uh, stage and it has a very long life cycle. It has one generation per year, at least in, in the, in the North here where the, the winters kill them. And um, they start out hatching in, in about mid May And the first, first instars are tiny, um, look like tick size. A lot of people think they're, they're being overrun with ticks or tiny spiders uh, black and white. Um, if you go go to push them, uh, touch them, they'll hop. And that that's the giveaway. And then the fourth instar of, of the larval stage, they, they also have uh, a lot of red in that shell in their, in their, uh, in their coloring. And then that, that adult phase around here is generally about mid to late July. That's when they get their wings and that's when they start really flying. But every, every stage of this thing is mobile and we've, we've done it. We've tracked them. We've tracked them with ultraviolet lights after rolling them in fluorescent powder and releasing them, uh, which is really cool. If you ever get a chance to get an ultraviolet light and go out in the woods, go see what's in the leaf litter that you never knew was there. It is, it is amazing. Um, Anyway, so we, we've done it. We've tracked them. And I say, we, I mean, there's a lot of people I work with that, that are just fantastic and, and working away at this. Uh, but we, st- we still have this problem with the individuals. We can't track individuals. Um, we know that they're moving, they're moving far my guess. And I've yet to see any evidence to show me wrong, but based on how we saw it move through our customer base, it's seven to eight miles a year. We were seeing this thing spread. And so, um, that's also what makes it very challenging, is that it, it is in motion, it spreads pretty far, and um, and to find an individual in a tree is almost impossible, an inch long blending in um, uh, on, on the bark when the wings are closed. When they open up their wings, their hind wings are very bright red, very distinctive, that's the image everybody sees, if you... Google spotted lanternfly, that's what you're going to see. But most of the time, that's not what you you look at. It's gray with some spots on it, and it blends into bark just amazingly well. So that's what makes it challenging. And one of the other just really bizarre natures of this, I believe it's this whole order, um, Fogoridae, they don't mind laying their, their eggs on not host plants. So even though they won't feed on conifers, they're very happy to lay their eggs on them. Uh, even though they don't feed on uh, rusty metal they're very happy to lay their eggs on a dumpster and so because they can spread their eggs everywhere and will lay their eggs on just about any hard surface it makes it very challenging to try and screen them out and uh, and not move them further and faster with human assistance and and that's probably how they got here probably on the packing material or the material itself. That was imported. And it was probably egg masses, which
0: look like just a little dab of mud, not much bigger and, than a penny. And, and I would, I would venture to guess, and that is what it is here, Brian, because um I'm not a, a, an entomologist in any way, shape, or form. But nor am I. I. Yeah, no, right. But here's here's what I I mean. We we see their, their favorite food is the, Alanthus tree, of, tree
2: yeah.
0: the, the tree of heaven, and, um, and grapes, and grapes. grapes. Um, so, so if I, if I just heard what you said, right, um, they don't mind, they don't mind laying eggs on rusty old metal. Um, they don't mind laying it on, on vehicles or cars or anything that's, you know, still or mobile. Um, when I go along the train tracks, um, um, there's a lot of trees and there's a lot of rusty metal and a lot of, um, places for, for a, a female, an adult female to lay eggs. And, um, I think that, um, that certainly has contributed to the the movement of those those insects out of the first area they were found in Berks County um yeah. to across Pennsylvania across the mid- atlantic now um yeah. and and I think that um you know that that's got to contribute to it. yeah um, so their right. favorite food their favorite food is the Atlantuss tree, and they love grapes. Um, um, however, so, there's a
2: huge, however. Spotted lanternfly is just amazingly good at taking a meal from just about anything it, it can in order to get by. And so we'll, we'll get reports about them tacking, you know, feeding on quazon Cherry, right? Not normally a host, but after a big flight dispersal, when they land and if that's all that's available, that's what they'll feed on and they'll stay there for a day or two, get what they need and move on. Same thing with, uh, fruit trees, apples, peaches, will they are, uh, feed on it? Yes. Are they capable of feeding on it? Yes. Given their drone druthers? No, it's not what they want, but um, because they are so amazingly good at feeding on just about anything. And this includes all the way down to perennial wheat. Uh, the nymphs will feed on clover stems. If it's got, if it's got sap, they can feed on it. And um and they absolutely will try and feed on conifers that they're just not going to be successful at it. And so, that ability to feed on anything in a pinch really helps to make them more successful. Yeah. How about grass? Do they feed on grass? I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> so, based on what I looked at with my own turf, which is an unholy mess of just about everything that you can grow in grass with grass um, they do fine Uh, plantain uh, buckhorn plantain clovers all those other things that are in there Mm. definitely straight up straight up grass probably not as successful because it doesn't have the stem that they can get the sap out of
1: how about corn? Because corn is a monocot as well. So has there been documented? We've seen we've seen them.
2: Yep, yeah, we've seen them feed on corn. We actually did some transects last year through corn fields. Uh, a farmer reported to us that they they were harvesting and actually rode in the harvester, which is which is a wild ride if it's something that you've never seen in in high speed production. Twenty foot swaths of corn coming off, and I sat there and counted every lanternfly that popped up. Um, while while we were going along the field yes they are capable of feeding on the corn not their favorite and so you know if that's what's available when they're crossing that giant monoculture area then they'll, they'll stop and take that that meal from it uh if and this is the analogy that I always use when I'm when I'm doing this at meetings is is to say if you've ever been traveling in in the middle of the night and you got somewhere to get to and you stop in a gas station, fuel up, you go to get something to eat. And there's one lonely hot dog on the <laughs> roller that's been there for at least two presidential administrations, yeah. right? Technically it's food.
1: Nobody <laughs> would
2: pick that as their first choice, but in a pinch, it'll get you to where there's, there's better food. And I think that's how lanternflies view a lot of the plants that we see them feeding on. because yeah. the list I think is over hundred now that they've, been documented to feed on uh but given their choice they won't stay there unless they have to so now
1: that being said i mean we have every plant that we grow in our landscapes whether it be a beneficial or uh you know a weed per se Mm -hmm. we've all got there's all these different types of insects that are coming and going taking a little bite of something and leaving uh, that doesn't mean that we warrant an application per se you know i don't think a a corn grower or even just say a turf manager is going to go out and spray their fairways or spray their sports field because they're worried about lantern flies coming in.
2: Yeah. And it would probably, probably be a terrible use of, of resources. Um, Exactly. Yeah. One, one thing that we can say though, um, in the nymph stage, they tend to, to get more into the uh, perennials. So you'll see them in the salvia, soft stem tissue, and really, the, the first two instars, anything that's uh, lush, uh, soft tissue, new growth, they'll feed on. And that's, that's right down to, to the, the Osier dogwoods. You know, they'll, if it's soft and lush, they'll feed on it. The thing about it, if you're overrun, you know, and you want to do a shot of, of something soft, go for it. Everything kills these bugs. That's the amazing thing, too. Every insecticide almost just about kills them. Uh, insecticidal soap is fantastically effective if you get a good coverage. The problem is because they're in constant motion, you may see them on that plant one day and they might be gone the next. And, and so, you know, if you're doing this, uh, you know, if you're, if you're running in a country club and you, your front beds, your flower beds need to look nice, need to look good. and. Yeah, if they're feeding on those perennials to the point where they're withering them, you might want to knock them down. Um, But I wouldn't I wouldn't go anything long term because it's just as good a chance two days from then there's not going to be any in the bed. So it makes it a little bit more challenging to make your decisions. Um, The heavy hitting uh, the Neonics, you save them for for the end of the season or or on the primary uh, hosts when you have them on the primary hosts. Um, end of season we that's the other thing we see them move to maples consistently consistently on maples that's a it's a favorite place and, and grape if you're a grape grower um, they will come into a vineyard from we are not sure how far but they will consistently show up year after year so you know save your heavy hitters when you for when you know they're going to stay put for a little bit but uh softer stuff it's it's based on what you need to accomplish if it, if you're so yeah.
1: so something like bifenthrin, you know, which like in turf, we're using that for like surface feeder applications yep. for things like army worms and chinch bugs. That's, that would uh, take care of them as well.
2: Knocks the crap out of them. Yeah, But
1: you have to contact the actual insect. It's not like you spray it and you don't get residual for a month.
2: You, you Not for a month, but um, some of the bifenthrin applications, we've seen residual, you know, weather dependent, uh, how much rainfall you get, the heat and everything we're seeing, uh, 10 days to two weeks. So and we we do that with sleeve trials where it's sprayed onto a plant. Um, and then, uh, we, we continually add them in day after day and see when it stops being effective as a contact. So yeah, the, uh, beta cyfluthrin, bifenthrin, very effective. Uh, there's a couple more, um, actives, but most of the synthetic pyrethroids are fantastically, uh, effective and, you know, relatively low cost and, and easy to apply.
1: So for, for listeners that are wondering what those would be that maybe you're familiar with these neonicotinoids would be imidacloprid, maybe, um, dinotefuran,
2: um, definitely. Yep. Uh, imidacloprid is, is a little bit different. What we found with imidacloprid is that, and we don't have this completed and, and, uh, or published yet, but the work's actually in the lab right now, but the the samples are being processed. What we found with imidacloprid is that in the wild, when these things are exposed to the imidacloprid, With the feeding, they tend to get a sublethal dose and recognize it and move on. And so when we force them to stay on the trees that are treated with imidacloprid, they will die. Uh, When we get them to the point of moribund where they're they're just kind of stupid, put them onto a clean tree, they recover pretty well. Dynotapheron, uh, different story. They don't get the chance to recover with a properly treated, properly dosed dynotapheron application. So, imidacloprid, it's effective in that it will keep them from feeding on the tree in high numbers. We see reductions in numbers, you know, wild population, uh, but we don't see them dead on the ground. So, um, you know, there's where it comes down to what's your goal. Are you trying to kill or are you trying to protect the tree? Are you trying? Well, that's the other thing we didn't talk about the honeydew production. Um, everybody knows aphids knows honeydew. These things uh, make honeydew, you know, amplify the size of an aphid. And, and when you get under a tree that's heavily infested, it looks like it's raining on a sunny day and that honeydew will, will drench everything and then grow sooty mold. You can have uh, decking patios, Uh, just absolutely covered in sooty mold and and it's a it's a nuisance at that point it's a it's a very unpleasant place to be you wind up sticky and and it's not pleasant underneath these trees so if your goal is to to stop the feeding stop the honeydew production yeah you know you're not going to have a wedding event under trees that are are drenching the guests with with um Honey, honeydew, and uh, and covering them with liquid excrement from from giant insects. So, yeah, good times.
1: Timing of application for these neonicotinoids, like a Safari or dinotefuran or zylam, something like that.
2: Okay, so di- dinotefuran, uh, pretty much all applications, all formulations, it is incredibly uh, water soluble, moves very fast through the through plants depending on um, probably the slowest application method would be a soil drench, uh, fastest being direct trunk injection. And uh, with direct trunk injection, we can see the, the lanternflies dying within sometimes 45 minutes. If you have good transpiration on good uptake, they'll start falling out of the sky uh, with bark, bark banding, bowl spraying, depending what you want to call it, where you're spraying the trunk and, and relying on the absorption, a couple hours, generally. Again, it's it's using the transpiration of the tree of the vascular tissue to for the uptake. And dinotefuran moves very quickly. Um, soil application, if you're going to do it that way, probably the least precise method and slowest. Going to take you, I uh, figure, two or three days is what it what it is on average. Uh, probably be a lot slower if you're in a drought and there's not good soil moisture you know, it's the same as the medical applications. You want to, you want to apply a good amount of water to get the material um, to the roots and and moving. So, but yeah, that's the nice thing about dinotephron. The one thing that we noticed is that while some of the labels say season-long control does not give season-long control for insects this big. And so you want to, pretty much time it out for, for ornamental trees. You want to time it out for the end of the season with the adults. So your treatments shouldn't really go before July, which is good also because it gets you a uh, post bloom period. So you don't have to worry so much about the pollinators. There's a, there's a slight difference too, though. That is for ornamentals. If you are doing this uh, to treatment, if you're doing this on uh, as a foliar application and you're, you're doing this as a government application or a broad scale application, Dynatef at the much lower rate per, well, same rate per acre, lower rate per, per plant with a foliar application going to spring. We've seen that, that lower, that lower dose per plant uh, of a foliar rate is not as effective against adults with nymphs, it knocks them out. So we actually did that with a helicopter in a, in a, in a federal, on federal lands. And that was pretty cool. We knocked them out uh, with on so there So there's different things we're learning,
1: but not, we're not talking about doing any applications like in the winter time, right?
2: No, no, there's, there's no reason. Uh, there's no reason to treat before they, they hatch. We've had, we've seen a, a number of people um, They're Applicators applied pre-hatch. There's no reason uh, to do that. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, the only the only thing really in the winter time you can you can do is uh, doing some some oil treatments, overside treatments against the eggs. And uh, the best we can say about that is taking to the highest rate with dormant oil. And I think, I think the 4% is about the highest on, on the labels. Um, you can get up to about 70% control of, of individual eggs, but it's tough to get to the tops of trees. Um, we know that most of the egg masses are in the upper two thirds of the trees. Trying to get that level of consistent coverage is difficult, um, but it's something that can be done to help reduce numbers. So, yeah.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. So we had a little conversation Brian before we um started recording this episode um about the spread of of the um uh, of this insect and you know we saw it come into Berks County um Pennsylvania which is down in the Philadelphia just outside of Philadelphia area um back in I think I heard you say 14 was the first we 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 it was saw discovered it. yeah. Yeah, so now here we are um eight years later. Um, and it's, you know, spread. Um, do you think this, the spread of this is going to be, um, I'll, I'll use, uh, uh, the gypsy moth as an example. Do you think it'll be like where it disappears from Berks County, uh, you know, Philadelphia and moves to Pittsburgh and then moves to Cleveland and then goes to Chicago. Um, and then maybe, five years from now circles back to Philadelphia. Um, that's the way a gypsy moth works. Um, um, or do you think it's going to be, uh, we reduce the population in Philadelphia and then we get a, a larger population in Pittsburgh and then we control that population and then it moves to Cleveland and we reduce that. Nah. How do you see
2: that?
0: How do you see the life cycle of this thing going? The
2: life I, thing? I, I don't see us getting, at this point, we don't have effective population control. Um, we, we just don't. Uh, I think the much better analogy would be the the Japanese beetle concept where it, it's kind of always present. It's just a matter of is it a higher population that season or lower population? and And in most of the area where this first was discovered, the population is is greatly, um, greatly reduced from from its peak of a couple of years ago. We don't know why. We we just straight up don't know why, and it's probably a combination of natural population dynamics, maybe some host fitness from multiple years of feeding, especially with the atlantis. Uh, A lot of atlantis have been killed, Um, and because it's atlantis, it's also resprouting and regrowing again. Um, But so I shouldn't say killed, but the top the the above ground portions have been destroyed. Um, You know, treatment. I think treatment has helped a little bit, but I think it's a, our, what we do in treatment is a, a hyper localized um, impact. I don't think uh, treatment has much impact off of the direct property that's treated. Um, and so, one of the things that we've seen is some, some areas that were completely over, overwhelmed are next to nothing present. And I say next to nothing because I can always find them somewhere. It's just very low numbers. So, and then other places have been consistently high. So a few miles away, not sure why, not sure what brings them in. Um, And in that, as we study them, you know, the the host change through the season. Like I said earlier, the maples, they, they come in on maple. So one of the sites we, we track, we track 50 maple trees week after week, you're counting, Right after the hatch, you're, you're counting thousands. By, by 4th of July, there's zeros. And we're week after week counting zeros. And we're using sticky bands to monitor zero, 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 zero. And it's boring and it's mind numbing. But then come the end of August, we start to see the adults start to come back in. And then we see these spikes come back up right before egg laying again, which again makes it very challenging. How do you time for something that's going to arrive and lay eggs when you're using systemics and have to treat? you know, bigger properties or multiple you know, properties, it's challenging. Um, that said, not every property has been consistent. We've seen some of them where they spike back the following year and then the third year, almost nothing. We're not sure. We're going to learn the hard way, unfortunately, but my guess, my best guess is it's going to be more like Japanese beetles where you can, you can have a grub and sophistication in one lawn and you can go to the next neighborhood and there's nothing. Um, you know, for whatever the reasons be. Yeah.
1: So if, um, you know, what's the discussion or what's the point of view or the recommendation that folks should do that maybe have a lanthus trees on their property? What do you do?
2: Well, a lanthus in and of itself is invasive. Um, there's no good reason to keep a lanthus um, unless I've I've seen people. It's their only shade tree, and they love it. You know, it fills the backyard, um, but Atlantis If it's a female, you should probably get rid of it because they're the ones that are reproducing. You know, lantus is dioecious. There's distinct male and female plants, and um, if you can, with with the male plants, if you want to use them as a trap tree, you can treat them with dinotefuran, knowing that lanthus that is in the area will be fed upon by lanternflies and you can use them as a trap and kill a lot of lanternflies. Um, That said, Dynotefron is not cheap and uh, doing those treatments for some people is cost prohibitive. But uh, if you do kill lanthus, if you go to kill lanthus, you pretty much universally have to use an herbicide as part of that program to get rid of it because it is such a freak tree with its clonal roots. our extension Penn state extension website has some great information there. Um, if you're going to do it, your best shot is going to be to apply the herbicide while the tree is alive to have it actively move that herbicide for you uh, and take out as much as, as possible. And, um, and then, you know, there's always that risk factor. Don't kill the tree and leave it standing dead. If there's any chance somebody's going to get killed by pieces falling out of the, the sky. Um when we talk to grape growers, it's a uh, 50-50 with the researchers, depending who you talk to. Some people feel that the Atlantis provide uh, better fitness for the insects. Um, I've seen plenty of fitness, <laughs> plenty plenty of very fit lanternflies with no Atlantis near bordering the properties of, of the vineyard. So uh, I don't think it's that important on that individual level. But I would say if you have a and you have um, the ability to make a trap tree, it's a very effective way to, to handle. uh, If you have a critical area that needs to be protected for whatever reason, you know? Yeah.
0: It's a mixed answer. Sorry. It depends, depends on the situation. Good, good good stuff though. Great stuff um, to share with our, with our listeners. Um, Brian, do you have, um, so as I travel around, um, I see posters and um you know stop the invader and um, I see bookmarks and I see um coaster coaster cover or coaster um coasters for bars and all kinds of different things so public public information public education I guess um, is what I'm trying to say um what would you say to people um about getting rid of uh, you you have a line i know you said um, you see it squash it um, smash it um, that you used before the show but what would you say to those people about the lanternfly so
2: when when this insect first was discovered and based on some of the information from other countries there was a fire and brimstone fear that this was going to be the end of all of our hardwoods and Pennsylvania is either the number one or number two, depending on the year, hardwood exporter in the United States is huge industry for, for our state. And so the fear was if this insect could come through and, and destroy our hardwoods and do all this damage and the fruit crops, the apples, the peaches, everything else, the grapes, um, it, it could have been absolutely catastrophic we've we've since realized that most of the the tree fruits are fine they don't particularly like them Uh, there's always that that remote caveat that uh transmission of a disease could um could change that but for the most part the um most most of that those dire warnings have have not been realized except for grapes Grapes are absolutely uh, threatened, and so when we look at what does that mean? Well, if we can prevent it from getting further, then we should do that. If we can prevent it from being accidentally moved by humans, we should we should do our best to to not send it to California to not send it to, and if you're not a wine drinker, understand that it can feed all the way through on hops as well. So if you're a beer drinker, there's a, there's a concern there for hops and the West coast hop production. It's a concern. Um, We can't eradicate, but we can do our best to not be stupid and move it further faster. Right. Um, In the meantime, a lot of researchers are still doing a lot of work and we're trying to figure out and, understand how to better handle this as a chronic it's a chronic problem it's going to remain a chronic problem um you know japanese beetles there's a harmonization plan materials moving from coast to coast are are subject to different rules and um there's a lot of great ways to handle japanese beetles and turf to minimize damage right um we'll get there eventually but eight years isn't long enough uh to, to know exactly what to
0: say and do is that, you know, it's a great way to great way to answer that. Um, um, and is there anything, um, Tanner that you want to ask Brian before we wrap this thing up or Brian that you want to say before we, we close out the show,
1: I got two quick things. The first one is what's the farthest lantern fly that's been found or, you know,
2: as far of a population from Berks County. They are works. Probably, it's right outside Detroit right now. Uh, also, down in the North Carolina. I don't. I don't know which one is geographically further.
1: No, that's that's good. Yeah. And then the other one that I was going to say is: there's something that you learned working with this that's just super strange or something super interesting that you think might be worth
2: discussing? Or if there's anything else that you just want to add. Uh, so yeah, going going back to the last question from Jeff. Uh, I mean, having done plant healthcare for 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 several decades now, I've never seen public awareness for an insect before like this. When you can watch Saturday Night Live and see a spotted lanternfly on Saturday Night Live, and the national attention that that brought, and and the the most. The, the craziest juxtaposition with this is that it's not killing all our trees, right? But we're, we're watching my daughter's home from school today because of power outages at her school, probably caused by ash trees that fell out of the sky and the power lines. How many people have ever seen an, an adult Emerald ash borer? And yet it's killed hundreds of millions of trees across our country. And and most people know that the ash borer is what killed the trees, but it, just not aware of them. And so The the craziest thing to me with this has been watching people become aware with the public campaigns, trying to do their part, and then some of the craziest things that they've done in the with the best of intention to stop an insect uh, from using flamethrowers to accidentally spraying uh, glyphosate on trees, thinking that, well, you know, Roundup kills everything. So it'll kill the lanternflies. And, and then seeing oak trees sprayed with Roundup, you know, those kind of things. Um, I, I love the fact that people mean well, but sometimes the public should maybe, um, isn't the best equipped to handle in pesticides. Um, and, and, and maybe we'll just leave it at that. I've,
0: I've seen some interesting stuff. Yeah. Uh, I can only imagine. Mm. Nope. So, um, Tanner, I'm going to go at, well, uh, while you guys wrap it up, I'm going to call to the bullpen, um, and get the, the, um, pitcher ready for the three strikes and you're out. But Brian, do you have anything you want to leave our listeners with before? Did I tell you about this part of the show? I uh, don't know that you did. Oh, So we, we ask you three random questions okay. uh, at the end of the show and you give us three pretty random answers for the All most right. part. Um I'm sorry. I forgot to tell you about that part, but while I call to the bullpen, if you have anything you want to say here at the end of the show, feel free to let our listeners with those final thoughts. Yeah. Uh, uh, best thing you can do is, is be kept up to date. Um,
2: our extension website for Penn State is pretty thorough. Uh, there's different things for different types of, of applications, be it, uh, if you're a farmer, if you're a, uh, a commercial applicator, there's, there's different, um, sets of advice to keep up with the research that that's going on and, and understandings of this insect and, uh, make good decisions, make good informed decisions and understand that, um, you know, the one thing you can't do is keep it from moving onto a property. And that's, that's what makes it a challenge. It's not a dandelion. You can't just go out and spray once and, and take care of that dandelion. They, this is, this is like the dandelions can get up and march in and,
0: uh, and come in by the thousands overnight. So yeah, very different. Great. Good information, Brian Walsh. I appreciate it. Um, Appreciate you being on the show. Um, but you're not going to get off right now because right. Um, I, I we have um, a little r- routine that we do at the end of each show, and that is we ask all of our guests three random questions. Um, nothing hard, not like trivia that you would get off of Jeopardy or someplace else, but kind of three random questions for our listeners to have an opportunity to get to know our guests a little bit better. And the first one's kind of a softball underhand, unlimited arc pitch, and that is... Um, what do you like to do when you're not chasing spotted lanternflies all over the world? What do, what are your hobbies? What do you what do you like to do? What do I like to do?
2: Well, right now it's uh, it's uh, we're we're in the middle of deer season, so hunting hunting is a good one. Uh, what else do I like to do? Um, I garden a lot. Um, I uh, I work on old junk cars and junk vehicles and junk. Uh, that should have been gone a while ago, but um, I have an affinity for for old cantankerous things. Uh, hence my wife, who's still here. Um, so, yeah, I like I like to play around. I, I um, you know I, I like to weld. I, I, I like to to work on stuff, create stuff, uh, not
0: necessarily useful for anybody, but me. So. <laughs> why would it be useful for anybody else? Right. <laughs> Until you hit that patent that you want to, that you want to, you, you find something that's really useful and you end up patenting it. And then, um then all of a sudden we don't see Brian at, at team meetings anymore because he's um living on his private Island somewhere um, outside of the, outside of the Caribbean. I,
2: I think, I think you'll be all right for, for the near future. Uh, <laughs> flies have, have uh put some of my projects on the back burner. And and when I say back burner, I mean, my wife's saying, when are you going to get rid of that crap? So yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Tanner, what do you have for our second pitch?
2: Yeah. Um, do
1: you like to cook
2: Brian or Actually, no? I, so yes, uh, I do like to cook. I uh, love to grill. Uh, just grilled our Turkey for Thanksgiving uh, charcoal, not, not big on gas, Uh, yeah, it takes a little bit longer to get it going, but then, uh, get your smoke right. Your apple wood, your, you know, in fact, I have a half dead apple tree that, that, uh, was very convenient this year for, for my smoking of the Turkey because I walked out with a sawzall and cut branches as I needed them in the, in the six hours that it took to get that Turkey done. Um, I do like to
1: cook. I will ask my question. You said, I like to hunt myself. Um, you like to hunt. And so, if you like to cook, my question is, is: what What's your favorite thing to make from you know maybe some of your harvests?
2: Hmm. Probably soup. soup, because you don't need any kind of uh, any kind of recipe. You use whatever's left over, uh, and just throw it in. And the worst that happens is, yeah. You add more crackers, you know, add some more <laughs> Cheez-Its and crush up some Cheez-Its and cover up the bad flavor, you know. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the gardening, I was out just still pulling carrots last night for uh, leftover, I guess two nights ago, for the turkey soup leftover. Um, still got carrots coming out of the garden. We still have uh, lettuce under the glass. So, yeah. Wow.
0: Good deal. That's yeah. that's That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, especially if you're, you're, uh, if you're making big batches of soup out of the leftover Turkey, because then you, you know, it takes a long time to make a batch of soup then too. So it's, it um, can, can find a lot of time. Yeah. So, you ever put a uh, lantern in your soup? Uh, not intentionally. Um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> I know I've, I have, I've heard people freak out with uh, you know, the lantern fly hit them in the mouth or something. And, and, I, I I don't even want to know how much fly excrement I have accidentally eaten. Just because yeah. that's where I spend my time under those trees. Um, I was going
0: to say it's it's just kind of the nature of the beast, right? <laughs>
2: yeah, and I do got to share. There's there is Dr. Julie Urban who uh, is is one of the smartest people I've ever met. And uh, out sampling with her one time, she picked up lanternfly and and uh, they they exude this waxy. Uh, material over the rags and it sometimes makes these bubbles that come out when with the excrement and it makes a picture like a like blowing gum bubble uh tiny and i i looked over and i and i see dr urban you know examining this thing and she's looking at it in this bubble and she's looking at it and then shrugs her shoulders and then tasted it and not aware that i was watching (laughs) and and i said are you you know, I, I can't repeat. What yeah, I said. yeah. You
0: can't say what you want to say or what you said. <laughs> and she said,
2: "Well, it's plant sap, like maple syrup. I had to see if it was sweet."
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it it's um the level of dedication to research at Penn State on spotted lanternflies is probably fairly unparalleled.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a that's a that's a pretty high level of dedication right there. Yeah. Well. Um, Right up until you start making soup out of them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. So so the third question, third and final question, Tanner, I'm going with the cigar question because I think Brian is um, a very interesting guy and I want to hear his answer to our cigar question. Brian, if you, if, excuse me, if no one was offended by the smoke of a cigar, the, the, um, the smoke being you know, put off, um, dead or alive. Nobody's offended by it, dead or alive. Who are the five people in this world that you would want to sit down and smoke a cigar with? Hmm. That's a very common reaction when we ask that question. So probably first and foremost would be Winston
2: Churchill. The cigar smoker of all cigar smokers, cigar smoker of all, sm- and and uh, whether or not he was smoking a cigar, I'd still think it would be fascinating to to meet the man. Uh, second up, Genghis Khan. Um, Genghis Khan, you know, depending, I think I think he got a bad rap in in Western uh, culture. Uh, he wasn't around to write his own biography, but um, so there's some interesting works about him and he may not have been as crazy as, as he's made out to be by the people he was conquering. Um still fascinating to talk to. I think to, uh, it would be th- a, definitely be an interesting cigar. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. 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 once you get him past the, you know, understanding how a lighter works and, and <laughs> you know,
0: <laughs> well, maybe you uh, could light it for him. <laughs> yeah, there you go.
2: Um, number three, um, probably, uh, That's, that's a, that's a great one. I would, I would like to talk to, uh, to Eisenhower. Okay.
1: Uh,
2: Eisenhower, you know, same vein as Churchill, you know, how, just the, how they held it together when the world was at its darkest and, um, and what they did, uh, George Carlin, number four,
0: yeah, George Carlin. A, ju- that would just, be a heck of a cigar right there. Uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. I uh, don't think you'd probably want that one to end. And, uh, <laughs> If probably This one's a little, little bit. Um, if you don't know, but if you have ever watched the show Gold Rush, there's uh, there's a guy Chris Dimmett works for for Parker, and had uh, worked for for some other people on the show. A does smoke a cigar most of the time, but B just seems to be one of those upbeat people that just can can shake off a really bad situation. And, and always has a smile on his face. And, and I just, sometimes I think, man, if I could just do that a little bit more, um, and, uh, not that he's not capable, not that he doesn't do his work, but just to, to understand that perspective, um, you know, it's, it's a, yeah,
0: there's my five good list, actually great list. Um, Brian Walsh, Penn State Extension, we really appreciate you being on the show with us today. Um, I'll remind our listeners that they can get a hold of Tanner and I at our email address. That's um, freshcutgrass at psu.edu. If you have questions for us or for our invited guests, um, we can distribute them out to them. Um, Tanner, another great one um, that we can chalk up to um, one of our coworkers. I'm going to let you um, take everybody home. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, thanks, Brian, for coming on. A um, little bit of a different
1: topic for us today, though most of the people that manage turf or turf facilities probably have some trees around um, or some plants that could potentially be affected by them. And a lot of folks that are you know, in this industry are kind of spend a lot of time outdoors. So probably I've interacted with them. And I think it was pretty interesting to get your perspective. So really do appreciate it. And uh, we will see all of our listeners next time.